Video Game The Movie The Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Video Game The Movie The Podcast. I am Mackenzie Easton Bertram? Yeah, we got married. Anyways, uh, I'm one of your hosts. <laughs> I am another host, the newly married husband host, Nathan Easton Bertram. And I am, once again, the third wheel here, uh, Lexi Conwell, the third the third wheel host. I, I spin. It's a very stable tricycle we're on here <laughs> to talk about a perhaps less stable film, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. The dream is always the same. I'm standing, waiting for something. If they knew about these dreams, they'd shut me down. The question is, will I be in time to save the Earth? We found it. Yes, the seventh spirit. You'll need to find the eighth and final spirit. We're closing in on the life form. Maybe one of those days. This is it. Dr. Ross has opened the door for us. There's a life form in here. You've got a talent for understatement. Over here, you son of a... This shouldn't be happening! What is that? The dream is coming faster now. Where are we? I'm not sure. Now, technically, this doesn't fit our criteria of a theatrically released video game adaptation, but Nathan is a huge Final Fantasy nerd, so we decided to talk about it anyways. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk about this for two reasons. One being that it is inspired in part by the Final Fantasy game series, and I think that does qualify it, at least in part, to talk about. If not for a main episode, then a bonus episode. But it also, it was a huge cultural event when it came out. I was 10 or 11 when this movie was released, and I remember it being a huge deal, at least in online circles that cared about film technology and video games and animation. It was a big deal, and I want to talk about it. Yeah, it is. That definitely makes sense. It is our first animated feature outside of the Pokemon film, and it is our first CG feature. Uh, and I think it's going to be our only CG feature for a long time, because this is real early in CG history yeah. for, for a full film like this. Yeah, this came out in 2001. They entered production, at least on the facility that they used in 1997. That's when Square Pictures was founded, uh, which was only three years after the release of Toy Story, which is the first uh, CGI feature film. Uh, this is the first 
photorealistic CG animated movie. Just for reference for everybody who uh, needs a reminder of what came out in 2001, this movie was contemporaneous with Shrek. Wait, Shrek came out in 2001? Yes, this movie came out the same year as Shrek. I was like four or five. Wait, there's no way that Shrek came out in 2001. Monsters, Inc. also came out in 2001. It was a good year for monsters. I definitely thought I was older. Anyways, as Nathan mentioned, this is a photorealistic, in the sense that you could get away with in 2001, animated film uh, that is not actually based on any of the plots of any of the actual Final Fantasy games, but exhibits all of the traits of a Final Fantasy game narrative. It is also worth noting it was directed by the creator of the original game, who also directed up to, I think, the fifth mainline game, uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi. So it does share a lot of DNA in common with the games that it pulls its name from. So, with all of that out of the way, Lexi, what did you think of Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within? Uh, Do we want to, like, go through our relationship to Final Fantasy, or, like... I've never played any, except for once I tried to buy one on the DS and I couldn't get through it. I've watched Nathan play through the entirety of 15 and 7 Remake at this point, and I have cultural osmosis about what Final Fantasy is, but I've never played any of the games. You have played several Kingdom Hearts games, and I will say... The Kingdom Hearts franchise is essentially a cartoonier, more action-focused version of what Final Fantasy is, except it's all in one franchise, so the ridiculousness of its complex lore just compounds exponentially. Yes, I love the Kingdom Hearts <laughs> games, but that's mostly because Goofy is there, and it's just absurd to like have an anime sad boy fighting Goofy. But, like, in a good way. <laughs> Look, I can't justify why I love Kingdom Hearts. Lexi, it's your turn. Uh, I have... I'm in a pretty similar boat. I've never played any of the Final Fantasy games. I have seen a lot of Final Fantasy XV, the Road Trip Boys, played. Uh, and I have seen a few choice scenes from Final Fantasy VII, the remake, because of these two. But other than that, like, I don't really know much about Final Fantasy except what I hear in the world randomly sometimes. So the main distinguishing factor here is that me and Lexi are in our, like, early or mid-twenties, and Nathan is 29. So Nathan, what's your background with Final Fantasy? Well, I got into Final Fantasy kind of before I'd played any of the games, because I have... An older brother who owned a number of the games before I was old enough to play them. So I watched him play uh, 7, 8, and 9 when I was a kid. I was 7 years old when Final Fantasy 7 came out, and that was rated teen, so my parents wouldn't let me play it until I was at least 13. Alright, so your mom actually followed <laughs> rating systems. Yes, she did. Uh, She wouldn't let me play them until I turned 13, but I grew up watching my brother play all of these games, and I was really invested in them. So as soon as I was able and I bought a used PS1, I found copies of 7, 8, and 9, and I played them. And then from there, I sought out any of the new ones that came out more or less as they came out, although I didn't have a lot of money at the time, so I tended to have to wait around. At the time. (laughs) fair uh but then i also using various means played some of the harder to get earlier ones 
for the Nintendo systems. Like a lot of the earlier ones were on the Nintendo and Super Nintendo uh, before the PlayStation just kind of took over the entire market for uh, RPGs. Uh, yeah, so I've played a lot of them. There are a handful of the earlier ones that I still have not got around to playing, but I've played everything from 7 through seven through 15, except the online ones, and I there are a couple that I didn't finish entirely, but I have played most of the franchise, Jeez. including some of the direct sequels, because Final Fantasy as a series is an anthology series where there are common elements that carry over, elements and themes that carry over from game to game, but each mainline entry is a separate story set in a separate world with a separate cast. Which is why there are things like 10-2 and 13, Lightning's Revenge. Right. The titles do kind of make sense, but they are nonsense as much as they make sense. It's just this horrible tree branching out infinitely. It's got 15 Final Fantasy games, except there's 60 of them. There's 15, but also 15 has a sequel, but also 10 has two sequels. No. Even in the Nintendo era, they were releasing spin-off titles like Mystic Quest that were not really related to any of the other ones, but also not big enough to be their own mainline entries, so... Which is how I managed to get my hands on some weird DS title that was labeled Final Fantasy, but was not a Final Fantasy game either of us remember or can track down. And things like Crystal Chronicles, which is the only non-online multiplayer Final Fantasy game that's getting remastered for the Switch. Anyways, the point is Final Fantasy's been around a while and Nathan cares about it, so we're talking about it. (laughs) I do. I'm that nerd that follows Google alerts for the next Final Fantasy game that's coming out so I can keep up on the like release date and news about its development. This is a process that nerd. takes upwards of five to ten years. Yep. Alright, so let's get going towards the actual movie we're supposed to be talking about. Final Fantasy, Spirits Within. Uh, round table style, let's have a discussion and see what everybody thinks about it before we go any deeper. Lexi, how was your experience watching Final Fantasy Spirits Within? I genuinely liked this movie. I actually think it is one of the best video game movies that we have watched on this podcast so far, and I will die on this hill. Okay. Nathan, your turn. I think this movie is very flawed, but very interesting, and there is a lot of clear, ambitious intention behind the choices they made, and I definitely appreciate that. I enjoy watching it almost as an academic exercise, but I do think there is some definite value to it, and it is one of the one of the more competently put together, but also trying to push an envelope in a way that earlier video game movies weren't. Like, they were just trying to get out and make money. With the exception of, we were talking the other night, uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie, where the uh, intention got muddied by interference from other elements of the production, and the executives got scared of what the directors were trying to do. (laughs) But that's not the case with Spirits Within. Spirits Within, like, they had all the control they wanted. I just don't know if everything that they were trying actually works. Alright, so that just leaves me. I do agree that this is the movie that is by far the trying the hardest to actually do something interesting that we've watched so far. Like, this movie 
is trying really hard. It is doing yeah. things. I just wish... It is one of those movies that I find very frustrating because I don't think it comes together very well in the end as like a finished filmic pro- pro- finished product. Hmm. Like I don't feel like it's got a very strong emotional or narrative like sensibility to it, but it's got a lot of really cool stuff in it and a lot of ideas that are really neat and a lot of execution that's really neat. So I just I just feel like it needed one or two more rounds of like scripts cleaning up before it got made the way it did because i think all of the pieces it needs to be like a really great science fiction film are there it just needed one or two more passes and what we have is a little bit longing for another chance in my in my estimation i'll accept that i I don't think it's bad and the thing that i was worried about going into this movie and i think a lot of people would be going into spirits within is that it kind of because it's trying to do the CG photorealistic motion capture thing, your first thought is, oh, this is going to be Uncanny Valley as heck. And it's not. It is almost never in the Uncanny Valley. The character models are really good. Like, the texturing is terrible, but it's just because it's 2001. Like, it looks like fine. I was really impressed. I like, I was really impressed by this movie's animation. I, I had to look up when it came out to make sure that it didn't come out as like a fine CGI mo- motion capture movie from like 2010. Yeah, like because the things that it, portray its age are really in the texturing, the like actual mm-hmm. animation quality and the model design and all of that stuff. Really good. Really good. And and it doesn't. It is not well treated by its uh, trailer or opening moments, uh, visually speaking, because they seem to have put all of the worst like uncanny valley moments into the trailers. <laughs> Like, it looks upsetting when you look up stuff about it, but it's not. It is, like, I've seen all of the, like, moving, or what is that company? Robert Zemeckis' terrible, terrifying company. Uh, Image Movers Digital. Yes, I've seen a bunch of the Image Movers movies, the, like, Christmas train movie and whatnot, and, and, like, those are creepy looking, (laughs) even though the textures are better, whereas this is, it just kind of looks like CG anime, like a little more realistic stylized than that. And it's yeah, fine. It is watchable I, as far as that's concerned. I was reminded quite strongly of the cutscene animation style, or like texturing style at least, from Deus Ex Invisible War. Mm. Um, yeah. it, it really looked like that to me, but way better because, at least in my copy, that game's cutscenes stuttered really hard. So it was like, so this was leagues beyond that, but it, it still looked texture wise pretty similar. And I grew up on that game, so it's like, yeah, it's, it's fine. It does, it does look like a cutscene, but like a Final Fantasy cutscene where they put more of their budget yeah. into designing the cutscenes than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very polished video game animation. But for 2001, it's also really good for an attempt at photorealism in cinema. No. My biggest complaint about the animation or the visuals of the film is not anything in the, like, actual technicals of it. I think it's very impressive for its time. It's the color palette. It's just so desaturated. Mm. Most of this movie is just so bland-looking and is really unnecessary Especially since there's supposed to be, like, a contrast between the, like, worlds they're living in and the, like, dead Earth and the dead planets around them. The fact that, like, everything looks dead the whole movie doesn't, I I don't think helps itself tell the story it's trying to tell. It looks like 
Well, it, lo- it looks very early 2000s in that, like, everything is desaturated and, like, kind of military-coded. It looks a lot like the Matrix sequels. It has some, like, it, it longs for the color of the prequels, even though it kind of has some of the vibes of the Star Wars prequels. It's weird. It's aesthetically, that's my problem with it, is that, like, everything is, like, desaturated. Which I think I take more umbrage with than you guys, because I'm the visual artist in the crew, and you guys are more on the writing and music side. Yeah. It does certainly have a very gray and brown color palette overall. Yeah. It looks a little bit like a military shooter. <laughs> Ironically. Little, yeah. Do so we want I've, to... I mentioned some of the plot elements here. Who wants to give a rundown on what the plot of this movie is? Uh, Lexi is, is very eagerly volunteering. Okay. So the plot of this movie is the world has been rough, basically destroyed by an invading, supposedly invading alien force of these creatures called phantoms. And so we follow the plot, we follow the story of a researcher who has been having this dream from these aliens that hasn't quite finished yet. By the end of the movie, we find out that the phantoms are the dead spirits of a long destroyed world that traveled here accidentally on a meteor and are just lost and destroying everything. But the phantoms are invisible and will tear your soul out if they touch you. She is trying to find the eight spirits of Gaia, the our planet's soul, and so that they can combine them to create a waveform that will negate the phantoms and make them go away. They already have six, and she's infected with some, and they're using that to protect her. From there, the movie is basically... A love interest guy named Gray is leading a a squad with her to try and find the uh, 7th and 8th spirits. Meanwhile, there's a military leader in one of the barrier cities that all all of humanity is kind of hiding in who is like we we got to destroy the the phantoms we we're going we're going to blow them up with the zeus cannon just give me the word just just let me do the thing and they're like no that's stupid you you we should wait because the phantoms we don't know they could burrow into the earth and if you fire this weapon it could like kill the planet's spirit and he's like that's a bunch of nonsense so he ends up opening a hole in the barrier so that he can say look council the spirits got in we got to move fast and destroy them um and because he thinks he can contain them but what he doesn't realize is that they're dead and they follow the spirit energy grid that powers all of the technology on this planet throughout the rest of the city and kill basically everyone in the whole city, including all of the, the plucky squad side characters that we grew to love. Um, and then, uh, so it's just this doctor played by Ming-Na Wen uh, and Gray and the kind of scientist mentor guy who whose theory that the Earth is alive Uh, is trying to put together this waveform. They go to the big meteor site because the eighth spirit is there. The general fires the Zeus cannon so much that it overheats because he's so zealous that he ignores all safety standards and blows the whole thing up, uh, also killing the Earth. And 
Gray sacrifices himself by being the conduit through which the waveform can pass from uh, Ming-Na Wen's character into the eldritch horror that has that Earth has become. Uh, and, and basically everyone in the movie is dead except for her and the old scientist guy, which was a shock to me that he survived. And that's the movie. It's over. There's a bird at the end. Oh, yeah, there's a bird at the end. Uh, all, all life comes back to Earth because they cleansed Earth's spirit. It's heavily implied, but not shown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So- I mean, I think, I think it's going to... I think it's implied that it's going to come back. It's not like an instantaneous thing, but it's like Earth is healthy and alive again, just not the things on it are alive yet kind of thing. As you might tell from that uh, very good description, actually, A plus job, Lexi. This movie's a bit weird. Like I'm into it. It goes some places. Uh, I think the thing that makes it feel so weird to me is that all of this is happening on, on actual Earth. Like, Mm. the movie is just expecting me to get over the fact that, like, apparently for this whole time, I've been living on a planet that has a glowing blue center somewhere, and nobody's noticed it. That's fair. (laughs) See, the Final Fantasy games get away with this by having all of the planets just be, like, Earth-like, and, like, never really addressing the concept of Earth existing. But I feel like they thought, well, this is a big mainstream movie, so it needs to be earth and they didn't think about the consequences of making it Earth. Because there are. It's weird. It's got some weird vibes because of that. I actually found some reasoning behind why they did that. So, apparently, when Hironobu Sakaguchi was approaching this movie, I don't know when exactly in the timeline, whether it was before or after they'd started pre-production, but at some point, uh, someone close to him had died, and he was thinking a lot about the passage of, like, the spirit when the body dies, and that was, like, the kernel of the idea for the movie, but he thought that in order to properly, like, explore and address those ideas, he wanted it to be set on Earth, because then the audience would have a more immediate connection to the events that were going on, which I think was okay. a bad decision, <laughs> just creatively. <laughs> I do think it it takes your... As the viewer, it takes you out of the fiction and makes you try and process what's happening as part of a world that you already understand. And I think that is limiting to the actual story that he's trying to tell. But I do wonder if it's maybe not a little bit easier for people who grow up in cultures with a more animist kind of background. If you already have Mm -hmm. a sense that everything has a spirit, maybe that makes seeing Earth that way a little bit easier. But we're coming from a distinctly, like, Western Christian background where, like, nothing is alive. Everything is dead and for the taking. Mm. Um, I mean, I I definitely it kind of res- the movie resonated with me. It, I I liked it. I mean the the thing about like you look at a fissure that's not even that deep in the earth and you see a glowing sea of blue energy that is the spirits uh, spirits the the planet spirit. I mean, I think that was like a little heavy handed. A little bit. And but. I mean, other than that, I was like, you know what? Sure, let's go for it. I I like it conceptually. I just feel like there may be 
needed to be a teeny bit more work put in to either sell us on that idea or like just put it somewhere not earth mm-hmm. um yeah the the game that this resembles most out of the franchise is Final Fantasy 7 which came out around the same time they started working on this project and in that game, it is basically just Earth, but they only ever refer to it as the planet in capitalized. <laughs> like, that is what they call it, which you, means you can get away with doing a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily make sense for Earth, but at the same time, you can have, like, cars and cell phones and stuff like that, and it doesn't feel necessarily out of place. Yeah. Also, the reason that it's so similar is because... It's also a movie about how the planet has, like, a big soul inside of it, and if you hit it with a meteor hard enough, that could be bad for it. (laughs) (laughs) Superficially, yes. (laughs) So, let's move on. Uh, Characters, I guess, would be a good place to start, uh, because the plot is, like, a lot. We'll get into that, but, like, let's start with the characters (laughs) so we have a sense of who we're talking about here. Lexi, do you want to discuss any of your feelings or thoughts about the characters? Uh, well, so it is a kind of star cast, at least some of the main characters. I mean, there's Alec Baldwin, Steve Buscemi, uh, Ming-Na Wen, uh, let's see. James Woods is there. Donald Sutherland. Um, I don't necessarily know everyone, but it's just like, I mean, these are not nothing actors. And the performances Um, are good for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there, there were moments, uh, especially at the end. I don't think of Ming-Na Wen as a particularly emotional actress. She She's good at quite a few things, but her pleading with Grey to not die at the end of the movie was kind of... A little stilted. Yeah. She's more of a physical <laughs> actress, which is a bit weird when it's an animated movie. Oh, I will yeah. point out this is post-Mulan. Yes, I feel like a performance in Mulan is better. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, so. She she is she provably can do voice acting. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm I'm not like getting it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that her voice acting was bad. I'm just saying that like in this moment t- near the end of the movie, I was like, in this moment, your voice acting is not very good. <laughs> but the it's rest of it was pretty good. Be. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So we've got the doctor. I think her name is Aki, and she's driven and also dying because of the phantom stuff that's in her heart uh, contained. There's Sid, who's this old mentor guy who's very wise and not a whole lot else. He, he fulfills the like wise mentor role quite well. I liked him a lot, even though he didn't have much going on. He's a good uh, Iro type. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, uh, Gray, who's a very standard shooter video game protagonist, uh, even though he's the love interest. He's so, so planned. He's really planned. Everyone's, she's, they're, they're in love. They seem to have been involved previously, and now they're like, no, we're not together. We're not involved. But everyone's like, hey, hey. Don't 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 fuck that guy. Don't don't do it. it a war's going on. Don't do it. And they're like, yeah, no, you're you're crazy. We're not doing that. And then it's just like, yeah, we're super in love. But 
also it's fine he dies at the end yeah literally when this character showed up for the first time i was like that is the most generic man i've ever seen (laughs) he is the most generic looking character and like that is a minor problem with the animation is that everything looks good but like very few of the characters are terribly interesting looking they're kind of they're kind of default humans for the most part like sid has a sid who is the scientist probably has the most like distinctive design of anybody besides the main villain who is just like the most nutsy coded man in the world he just looks so sleazy he actually reminds me a lot of jc denton from deus ex i was constantly thinking that's him and like it it just it's basically just his character model with the coat and everything he's he's wearing a long black trench coat um you know that the people in the future who are cool and spooky wear but yeah he's just like destroy all phantoms all by any means necessary and damn the consequences he is a character that i he is one of the characters i feel would have been better treated by like one more rewrite because he has Mm -hmm. a tragic backstory where his wife and daughter were like the first two of the first people like to die in the first like wave of phantom attacks like yeah like you know that'll mess you up i get it but we don't see that and I really feel like yeah. the movie would have benefited from opening on the very first Phantom attacks in, like, San Francisco, which I think is where it says he's from. Hmm. Just so, one, we get a sense of what the world used to look like. Two, we know what the horror potentially is from this before we necessarily know anything else that's going on. And three, so that the villain's motivation doesn't get so watered down, it just feels silly. Yeah, he does feel kind of silly. He has a moment where he's like, what have I done? Where it's like, oh, I've screwed up and gotten all of New York, or what's left of it, killed. But then uh, he just and keeps he actually... doing stupid shit! Right! I mean, he. there is a moment where he contemplates suicide. Like, he actually has a gun to his head at one point in the movie. Uh, but then he sees a notification that, like, the Zeus cannon exists or something, and he's just like, nah, I'm gonna blow up the planet. This guy is voiced by James Wood, by the way, actual real-life asshole, so we can make fun of him as much as we want. Yeah, this dude is the most Nazi-coded motherfucker in the entire movie, (laughs) and, like, his name is General Hein. He wears a coat with a pin on it that looks suspiciously like the um, I can't the the Nazi eagle, and Mm. he just wears like black leather and has slicked back hair and constantly talks about how much he wants to murder all of these invaders. Which, I mean, if you're going to code your villain, that's a fine way to code them. It's accepted practice in Hollywood. Oh, and the weapon he's trying to fire is called the Zeus Cannon. Yeah. A little bit uber-menchy, yeah. Yeah. So he also has, like, a sidekick, who I also think could have been a much more useful character in my version of the script I'm rewriting as we're doing this podcast, (laughs) uh, who explicitly... It's said that he lost family at some point in time, but he also seems to like feel more guilty about what's going on and kind of is dragged along into it a little bit more. I feel like that guy could be an excellent like opportunity to show us like people still existing in the city. Because the other thing that 
kind of negates the effect of the New York attack, in my personal opinion, is that the only people we see get killed are military. And they get killed not necessarily just because they're in the city, but because they're choosing to help save the doctor and her very boring boyfriend so that they can go do the waveform stuff. You don't really see the destruction of civilians because you never see civilians. You don't know what life is like at all for anyone on this planet who isn't actively going out and fucking shit up. Which, I just feel like the emotional impact of the Earth is dying and we need to do something to save it could be elevated by literally anybody but our main cast existing. They were probably saving money on character models. (laughs) I mean, honestly, probably, but, like, I feel like the scene where, like, Aki and Grey have their first argument, like, when they meet up back in New York, shouldn't be, like, on a weird isolated platform. It should be walking through the streets of the city so that we at least see that there is a life going on for people in this world, like something that they are theoretically fighting for. Mm -hmm. Uh, I totally agree. And I just, I think these things so angrily because the movie could be really amazing if it just took a little more time to establish itself. Not even time, just like focused on some of the things that are missing from it. Anyways, those are my opinions on the villain and also the fact that there are no civilians in this society, I suppose. I agree that a lot could have been uh, elevated by having regular civilians present over the course of the movie. But the movie does do a good job of sketching out personalities for all of the squad members. All of the side characters have quite a good amount of personality in this movie. There are, well... There's Two four of, of them. The three of the squad members have really good personalities, and one of them is a woman who is very tough. Yeah, we don't get a, get a lot about her, but like she's still a character that I liked. Yeah, you still yeah. like I, all of them. She has a fun back and forth with Steve Buscemi's character, who is like the class clown. Yeah. Yeah. I loved him. I was so sad when he died. <laughs> He's very Joker from Mass Effect. He's like kind He's of literally a, jerk, a pilot. But yeah. mostly like well meaning and funny. Uh and then their third squad member is the more like down to earth, a little more spiritual one. Uh Ving Rames? Yes. Yeah. Who's a little who's maybe the only one in the group who seems competent, but you know, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Steve Buscemi's character, the only fault with him, in my opinion, is that it's really weird seeing Steve Buscemi's voice come out of a dude that looks like that. Because <laughs> he's just so... As a, I just know Steve Buscemi's face too well, maybe. As a character actor, he does have a very distinct look. And it is weird hearing that voice come out of someone that looks so different. But that's not a fault okay. of his acting, that's just a fault of his face. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's two podcasts we've ragged on Steve Buscemi. I don't think there's anything wrong with his face. I just think it's weird hearing his voice come out of, like, an anime boy. Steve Buscemi is an excellent actor who does fantastic work, and none of what we're saying means that he's not good at his job. I just think it was weird and unsettling. (laughs) So that's most of the main cast. Uh... Probably worth noting that Sid, the scientist, is the needed Sid. All Final Fantasy products have a Sid. Yes. Mm. Every Final Fantasy has a Sid. Usually it, is it, an older character, uh, but it, yeah. Do, do they have, are they named Sid? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. They're literally named oh, Sid. Wow. Interestingly, there's no Biggs or Wedge in this one. That was another character type and also named the same that gets carried over, like, 
game to game. Uh, is this like the darks? Is this like patches from Dark Souls? No, no, no. There, there's literally in. Uh, I mean, barring the first game because they didn't have uh, predetermined names for the characters in the original. Uh, but uh, once they established characters that were actually characters and not just placeholders for the players, they started introducing uh, a character named Sid in every game and two characters that are together either as guards or soldiers or some variation like that named Biggs and Wedge. And there's <laughs> characters in every game named Biggs and Wedge that are often together. In, in Final Fantasy VII, it's two members of Avalanche are Biggs and Wedge, uh, but it varies from game to game. Sometimes they're soldiers, sometimes they're villains. In eight, I think they're uh, like en- they're enemies. They're like sub-bosses. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, but yeah, there's no Biggs or Wedge in Spirits Within, which was notable because they're just kind of a standard of the franchise. Trying to think if there's any more relevant character stuff to bring up before we move on. Not really. I mean, Mignal Wen's character is pretty, pretty standard female heroine, but she's not. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give it this. She's our second female protagonist, I think. Um, uh, not including something like Street Fighter, where there's like eight people who are the ensemble. protagonists. Yeah, Lara Croft and Aki Ross are the two. So Aki Ross. Our doctor, never, like, over-sexualized, pretty strong character. I mean, her story arc doesn't really revolve around the dude. He's kind of just a bonus. I'm gonna have to dock some points for, actually, she doesn't get to save the world at the end. It's her Chad boyfriend who gets to, like, do the big dramatic thing and save the world, and she just gets to be alive and sad. Which is, you know, fine, I'm just saying. It seems, like, wild that this dude's just a complainer the whole movie and then gets all the glory. He doesn't really... Hmm. I I don't necessarily agree that he gets all the glory. Like, she has spent the movie making everything happen. Like, she's the brains behind the operation, her and Sid. He's just a guy who doesn't really know how to... I mean, he's, he's a guy with a gun, basically. And who hasn't believed in the spirit stuff until kind of the end of the movie. So he kind of, he, I mean, she's the one with the the waveform inside her, the eighth spirit, uh, which is given to her by the earth. Um, His sacrifice, I don't know if it's necessarily all the glory. I mean, she gets to live on and help the world rebuild and see the fruits of her efforts. I feel like maybe just the movie longs for a, like either a touch of epilogue to make that come off a little mm. bit stronger or... Uh, yeah, it does close you. on her looking out on the world, holding him in her arms on yeah, an elevator. It, it feels weird for her arc to end there, in my opinion. But like, I get it. It's a pretty traditional story arc. It's just, you know, not my favorite story arc, I guess. Mm. Uh, so beat by beat. The movie doesn't open on the destruction of humanity. The movie opens on a dream sequence, which is, <laughs> I don't think, the right choice. It was pretty trippy. Super wild, and nothing makes sense. Yeah, but it's fine, because like, it is a dream. Barely a minute into this movie, we get an impossible camera angle that is under the earth looking up at the main character. It looks so cool. It's kind of disorienting, but it does look really cool. Oh, I I totally appreciate this movie's intense use of impossible cinematography. I just don't know if that's the way you want to open your movie. It just feels like a lot up front. 
<laughs> Anyways, after the dream sequence where basically nothing makes sense, we get some kind of stilted, like, exposition dialogue from the doctor while it's explaining what she's going to do next and why things are the way they are. I feel like the next scene is where, for me, the movie would have been better suited to start if it's not going to start on the destruction of San Francisco. It would be she is, like, going through the city trying to find this uh, life form, and we don't know exactly what the life form is, and we also don't really know what the things chasing her are. That scene, for me, had really good tension and very good, like building of the mystery although i do admit opening old new york city over times square <laughs> but for some reason instead of coke it's pepsi that's a great like, moment okay movie i've been there that's a coke sign <laughs> yeah like that's maybe just don't have any sign like <laughs> oh. also i want to point out at this that there is a Jumping off of that, there is a number of different product placement moments in this movie that are great. But my favorite is that uh, Aki Ross wears this wrist computer interface, which is really cool. And it looks like an Omni really well. Um, yeah. But if you look closely, whenever it shows the close-up, you can see that the like band that this is all built into is Psycho, the watch brand. <laughs> Whoa! Which also has a billboard in Times Square in at the beginning really of the funny. movie. So yeah, weird product placement aside, the scene is actually very good. She's going through the decimated ruins of New York. There is very good tension building with the invisible alien force. Like the Phantoms are really cool as like a villain yeah. concept or like an enemy monster concept. They are invisible and they rip your soul out. Awesome. Real and they cool. can phase they, through walls. They are literal they ghosts. They phase through walls and from yeah. underground, and some of them are people-sized, and some of them are giant elephant-sized monsters. Like, they're cool. They're really neat. Some of them are, like, big enough to, like, cover a canyon. These things, some of them are massive. They're, like, they're blue huge. whales bigger. They're, like, horrible spider tentacle things that they take, like, a whole minute to fly past in a ship. Yeah. It's, they're neat. And the threat is very visceral although it it's is hard to fight them very weird that nobody that there's such a contention in this movie about whether or not spirits are a real thing when these things rip your soul out in front of you yeah you can literally see the soul as it gets like consumed yeah <laughs> it's like blue mist i just feel like more and they power all of their like, technology with souls spiritual and emotional breakdowns because of this yeah that that we don't really deal with because that's not what the movie's about. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say one of the interesting things about the Phantoms as like enemy is that and you grow to understand this over the course of the narrative, but they are not inherently malicious. The threat is just their sheer presence. That just mm -hmm. passing too close to one can infect you with phantom particles. Which is just so tense in every scene where they are climbing through the ruins of the old cities and looking for parts of the, like looking for the spirits and stuff like that seeing one pass by the camera can give you chills because it's like oh that will eat my soul <laughs> <laughs> so aki gets picked up by a group of soldiers because she's not actually supposed to just wander through the ruins of new york by herself <laughs> 
She doesn't even have a weapon. She like she has a a thing that lets she has a gun that lets her shoot particles that lets her like make reveal the phantoms. It kind of charges them with energy so that they're visible, but she doesn't actually have a weapon to fight them off. So she's just wandering through. Yeah. Uh, so the the weapons that do seem to work on these things are lasers. Lasers work. Uh, so. <laughs> they're spirit lasers, though, because all the their guns are powered by like they they take like a, a piece of flesh or something which contains soul energy or whatever, and that's what they shoot. So it's like soul lasers. Yes, it is soul lasers. She is picked up by uh, this military group. She doesn't at the moment somehow recognize Steve Buscemi's voice or her boyfriend. Uh, but when they get inside, they take off their helmets, and she's like, "You guys, I had this under control." And I'm like, "You almost got my men killed." Well, I didn't ask you to come save me, and it's like, "Oh God, these two are gonna fuck." Um, <laughs> this is a very good introduction because you get this whole exchange before Gray has removed his helmet, so she's just arguing with this commander, and then. <laughs> He gets so fed up with it that he's like, oh, you haven't changed at all. And he's like, you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Now this is, this is a good dynamic. This is a good relationship yeah. dynamic. And it shows portrayed she, very well. And it shows her values, like that she is super dedicated to this project and attempting to save humanity. Um, the Phantoms... It is at this point revealed that if you get too close to the phantoms, they give you, like, an infection of phantom particles. They get back to New York, uh, and everybody has to go through, like, TSA scanners to make sure <laughs> that they don't have phantom infections. Which, like, yeah, that seems necessary. Reasonable, yeah. That seems reasonable. Especially because, uh-oh, Captain Commander Gen- Generic Man has some phantom, phantom particles. particles in him. Uh at which point Aki does, like, awesome laser surgery and, like, manages to save him, even though everyone says it's impossible. So... Yeah. But then also, good. there she's dodging the whole time. She's, like, dodging the scanner, just like, I don't want to go through this thing. And then she, dodge, she does get out of it because of Sid. And it's like, yeah, you have particles in you. Thanks for clearly implying this. Yes, thanks for implying that there's something going on here. Though, honestly, not the worst way that could have been implied. At least it is implied. It doesn't just show Mm -hmm. up randomly in the third act. Uh, Yes, Sid, who is Donald Sutherland, who just has a great voice. Honestly, Mm -hmm. should do more voice work. He has a great voice. Uh, Canadian treasure. Canadian treasure. Donald Sutherland. At this point, uh, (laughs) I made a note, the whiter characters look worse. The paler a character is, the worse their texturing look. The, like, one black character, or two, there's two black characters. Yeah. Two black characters look so much better in this movie than the white ones. Yeah, they ones. did, they looked pretty good. Uh, I don't know, it's something about the way the light reflects off of their skin, or the texturing they used for, this, for the darker-skinned characters, but, like, in my opinion, they all look better. And they're, like, more expressive, but there's only two of them, which is kind of a shame. Uh, the cast is actually pretty diverse, though, if you assume that Ming-Na Wen's character is Asian, which I think she's like, I think she's Asian. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the intention. There's a thing in anime-styled things where the default person design is, or and I think this is in a lot of media that has abstraction, 
the default human design looks like whatever race you are used to seeing as the default. So anime characters don't necessarily look Asian to Western viewers, and generally when they do white characters, it's like pretty clearly an exaggeration of certain traits, which is, you know, makes sense. That's how character design kind of works. But it's interesting in a 3D movie like this that, like, those distinctions kind of get a little bit muddied. Yeah. Not that I want Ming-Na Wen's character to be a horrible Asian stereotype, I just think unless you're like trying to read it that way it does it isn't necessarily going to be super obvious to like the standard 13 year old white boy playing final fantasy that like this movie was made for <laughs> actually i don't know who this movie was made for actually, that's maybe a discussion we should save for the end <laughs> but yes they get to new york which is actually quite pretty one of the few moments i like genuinely thought ooh, pretty in this entire movie was when they come into new york and all of the lights of the barrier i thought that was a really cool aesthetic moment unfortunately mm -hmm. that's the as aesthetics the aesthetics of this movie's technology are really cool like yeah. The ship designs are un are fairly unique and really cool looking. The technology, the barriers, like it's it's all really cool. It's got a little and bit of that well like, thought out. Early aughts desert storm kind of aesthetic where it's clearly pulling from American military style, but it's not like one to one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of the kind of the tactic that was taken by Alien direct the director of Alien, Ridley Scott, and the later James Cameron and Avatar. They've got similar like ship aesthetics, but they, not in the sense that they look the same. Just in the sense that I can tell they're pulling from the same pool of like design inspirations. It's also very Starcraft, mm -hmm. not mm. quite as exaggerated with the Space Marine armor and stuff in that, but. Some of the ideas are similar, for sure. It feels kind of Mass Effect, which is weird because Mass Effect hadn't come out yet. Actually, I found <laughs> I found a quote um, from an interview with one of the Mass Effect co-creators that said that this movie was one of his major inspirations when working on Mass Whoa. Effect. So okay, so I was wondering because this movie yeah. feels like the kind of thing that, or at least it feels like a lot of later work is inspired by it. But I didn't look at the movie and think. This is the kind of thing that inspires people, which is like, that's on me. I'm really glad to have that confirmation, because there is a through line there. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but this movie was a major commercial bomb. <laughs> but it does oh. seem to have seeped into later sci-fi aesthetics through the few people that latched onto it and really resonated with the movie and it sounds like mass effect was one of those where the someone who saw this movie went on to work on mass effect and it really shows. brought a lot of those ideas into it yeah so back to the plot they go to a board meeting <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's a council meeting of like humanity yes so humanity has a star wars prequels style council that like determines the politics uh it's very jedi council very like you know, normal council kind of thing. A little bit like the Mass Effect councils. You know, it's it's just like a group of dudes and ladies who are like in charge of making decisions. I don't know how they're elected or what the deal is, but they're around. Uh, they're like way less important than you'd think, given yeah. how much prominence there is early in the movie with them and their decision and how important they are. They show up once or twice more in the whole movie. Yeah, they show up in the initial meeting where they rule not to have the Zeus cannon fired because they want to give 
Dr. Ross and Sid the opportunity to find the next spirits. And build the way for him, because they think that's, like, a less yeah. dangerous solution, which it is, and also it's not, like, there is no sense of time crunch that yeah. the, 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 it is artificially induced later. I kind of wish that sense that actually we're in a pretty secure place right now was more emphasized in this scene. That, like, we're not actually in a rush to do, like, we want to deal with this because, like, this situation can't go on forever. But, like, it can go on for, like, a while. Like, it's been a while. They've been living in these cities. It's it's fine. It sucks, but it's fine. Yeah. Seems to be the sense. But I don't feel like they emphasize the stability very much. Because big, big fuck off cannon doesn't feel necessary if you have a stable situation, and it doesn't really explain how stable the situation is. Even though I get the sense that, like, yeah, things are fine, like, we should deal with the problem, but it's not, like, life or death immediately. Yeah, we have the time to deal with a situation in a smart way rather than firing a big fuck off cannon at it. Yeah. Which uh, could easily destroy us and make things worse. Because mm-hmm. they can't actually kill the ghosts, the phantoms. Because yes, they're dead. There are no ghosts at this point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> another movie, or not another movie, but another thing this feels similar to me is uh, it's got similar vibes to Ender's Game, where the protagonist mm. also keeps getting like dream-like visions as a form of communication from an alien species that they're like super planning on genociding. But like, yeah. They don't have to worry about the genociding this time because they're already dead. <laughs> like it's totally fine to wipe them all out. They're already wiped out. <sighs> also, no child soldiers, thankfully. Yeah. Also, no homophobia. Fuck you, Orson. <laughs> anyway. So anyway, the second time the council shows up is when they call General Hine to tell him he has permission to fire the cannon. And that's it. Yeah, they somehow managed to get out of the city. We didn't see this again, because we didn't really see anything happen to the city except the villain who triggered the, like, fake terrorist attack dying and blowing shit up, and the crew members who were in, like, military jail. Yeah. Yeah. Because because he the villain put them there. Yes. So mm-hmm. moving back to the plot, they give council permission to keep doing spirit stuff. Nazi gets not permission to do the laser thing. He's mad. Oh, yeah. I just want to point out part of General Hines' whole thought process is that I don't know if he genuinely believes this or if this is just his excuse for unilaterally making decisions on behalf of the military. But he says that he's arresting Dr. Ross and the team protecting her because he believes that she is being controlled by the phantoms because she revealed she was infected with phantom energy, which is such a wild leap in logic, dude. (laughs) So yeah, during this council case, the big climactic end point is, look, I've got phantom particles in me. I have for like, unspecified period of time (laughs) a while (laughs) these spirits successfully have kept it contained if we finish this we can like cure this problem and presumably get rid of all the phantoms so that's enough of a selling point boyfriend is absolutely fucking pissed he didn't tell her which or didn't tell him about this which you know what it is kind of cancer so like fair (laughs) 
like, fair that you're kind of upset about this, but also it's totally her choice not to, like, reveal her own medical history, so, you know, I get it, I get what the conflict is here. Like, as much as I find the male lead really generic and kind of boring, their relationship is pretty solid because, like, the conflicts are pretty genuine and they come from pretty genuine places. This is when the Nazi is like, oh shit, she's a double agent for the aliens, a thing that I've decided that can be possible even though we've had no communication with them this entire time. Um, Well, so she is recording her dreams and he does see that. So that happens a little bit later so they get the dream recordings. True. But at this point, the Nazi is like, you better arrest your girlfriend if anything is Something weird. Something weird happens. <laughs> he also specifically since- brings up that he has evidence of her being a devil agent, but we never actually see that. He just goes and has them arrested. Yeah, this whole double agent thing you think is going to be like, oh, he's collecting this evidence so that he can turn the council against her. But no, he never tells the council. He doesn't really do anything over. with it. He's intensely trying to gather data on her being, like, a traitor. But then that doesn't really play into his decision to, like, terrorize New York. It's just, like, a different thing he does. Like, I feel like they were supposed to be tied together better. Well, so I think his goal was he had this evidence, and I think he was going to turn the evidence into the council after he had stopped the... Uh, phantoms that he let in because it's like the phantoms are getting stronger or like maybe she sabotaged it or something you know somehow this is her fault and we need to stop the phantoms now and get rid of her research but that didn't play out because he screwed up and everyone died (laughs) yeah i again this is another case where i just think like another pass on the script could have tightened up the like multiple threads here and tied them together Mm -hmm. a little bit tighter i like the idea that he has decided because she's got this infection that she's dangerous that's actually really that tracks with the character and the world building it's fine i just don't like that it doesn't come to anything besides he's really pissy about it because it seems like he'd be pissy about anything because he's just a pissy man (laughs) he's just a pissy man i mean he's james woods of course he's just a pissy man but like also James Woods has done way better voice performances than this, but that's not because of, I think, James Woods or the movie. It's just that the character isn't allowed to be nearly as fun as Hades. I don't actually know anything about James Woods. He's a shitty, shitty man. (laughs) But he also played Hades and Hercules, and I really love that performance, so I gotta give him some credit there. Mm. He's fine in this. He plays Sleazy really well. Oh, the other thing that these, like, secret backroom meetings between the general and, like, other military people remind me of is Ants, which I know is a weird cross point, but it's got this exact like same setup where there's a shady military dude planning horrible things in a noir-esque backroom, and, like, he's got a second-in-command who's, like, kind of along for the ride, but not nearly as much as he wants him to be. That's actually a very apt comparison. (laughs) See, the things this movie reminds me of are varied. And again, it doesn't feel like it's because either of these movies is ripping each other off or is, like, not particularly creative. Because both movies are wildly creative. They're just pulling from this same source material. It's probably, like, referencing, like, 
40s Nazi movies or noirs or whatever that I just haven't seen. But like, mm. I was like, I asked Final one, Fantasy like, Spirits Within ripoff of Ants. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ants is a ripoff of A Bug's Life, which would make this like a three steps removed Bug's Life movie. Oh, that's, I thought Ants was Bug's Life. I've, um, I, no, Ants is up. Bug's Life, but Nazis. Okay. Ants is the movie that DreamWorks made when they found out Pixar's next movie was going to be about bugs. I see. I have never seen this movie. Oh, man, you need to watch Ants. It's a ride. (laughs) So imagine a Woody Allen comedy. Oh, no. But all of the characters are ants, and there is a fascist trying to take over the colony via a military coup. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This is a Woody Allen comedy? Woody Allen is the main ass. Yes. It also has a deeply unsettling character voice and uh, character model displacement because Christopher Walken is also in this movie and it never feels right. The ant with his voice, it just never seems right. This is a digression. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. So they go, the council meeting finishes. Uh, General Hine hatches his scheme to have... Uh, Dr. Ross and her bodyguards arrested, and then he goes to the, um, he goes to the generator room, basically, and opens a section of the barrier, which allows the phantoms to flood in and just completely well, okay, decimate no, before this, they go on another, like, oh, right, right, spirit right, capturing right. journey. Sorry. I'm jumping again here, okay. yes. So the main crew goes on another, hey, let's go get the spirits. This time you've got a military backup because you almost super got dead last time. <laughs> um, so yeah. they go, she has like another one of her dream sequences. It goes a little bit further this time and it reveals that the like planet that she keeps seeing blown up with all of the like aliens on it produces the meteor that like crashed into Earth later. So they go to another abandoned place. I think this is Tucson and they go to Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, the wasteland of Tucson. <laughs> Which is such a specific Ooh. location. I One detail that I appreciated about this sequence though is that as they're flying over Tucson you can see the skeleton of a barrier that must have mm. failed and the city was wiped out. Which is really good environmental storytelling. Nobody comments on it. They just fly over this like empty barrier city that, or the barrier is dead. And that was a nice moment. Yes. This is also where the bird gets introduced. They're like wandering, yeah. looking for the next thing. And there's a bird! And they're like, it's waiting. What's it waiting for? Life. Uh, <laughs> not quite in that many words, but like, it's a symbolic bird. You have seen symbolic birds before. It happens. Uh, yeah. They are like surrounded by the things, but she finally tracks down the la- the next spirit, and it's like the bacteria growing in the backpack of a dead soldier that is like part of their weapon system. But like, yeah. you know, that's kind of neat. The idea, like, the she lists the spirits slightly earlier in a scene that I think has terrible romantic chemistry, but has some really interesting <laughs> story beat moments for the main character. Like, is a good like showcase of her like her feelings about what's going on right now and like they found the first one in like a bird have you ever freaking tried to track down a sparrow from space it's not easy or they found like one of them in i can't remember what all of them were but the important part of that scene is that one of them was in a seven-year-old girl yeah and this is the only time the movie really like does any work 
to like remind you that there are other people that are suffering that are like dealing with this and she's like dying and the Mingna Wen's character tried to like comfort her with this knowledge that she has that like the earth is alive you're not just dying and going into nothingness there is like something that happens to your spirit afterwards and you are part of everything and this is like important but the girl doesn't believe her and just thinks she's trying to like comfort her and that clearly like broke her heart into a million pieces like yeah Mingna well, Wen is. Aki is like broken up about this like she is not dealing with it well yeah but like even more than that it's not just like she doesn't disbelieve her but she's also this child is also just ready to die she's like yeah it's fine you don't need to comfort me I'm ready to go yeah, and she was, and, and Aki's like, think about that, like a seven-year-old ready to die, that's not, like, she can't. Yeah. She's not okay with that being a thing that is happening, and it's like, okay, so she's a doctor in the sense that, like, she genuinely wants to help people, and, like, that's very important character building, and it's very well established in a movie where she doesn't have a lot of opportunities to show off that she's compassionate. Deep down, I think you still get that sense of her character really well, and you know what, that's hard, it's hard to do in a movie. And I don't I don't think this is a case of like show don't tell no this is like a good like character discussion moment and I I do want to give them props for that anyways they find the bacteria and then they have to skedaddle back to the ship there's a big like chasey flight sequence where they're like diving between and around the like phantoms because they're trying to avoid like getting totally borked by them it's real cool. <laughs> Uh, everyone makes it out alive, and then they immediately no, they get don't. arrested. <laughs> they they actually don't make it out alive. Um, yeah. At least one of the squad members, uh, the, one of the named ones, dies, I think. One of the, um, like, no, extras. Um, there okay. are there... other soldiers that were accompanying them on this mission, who it turns out are on General Hines' side, so on the flight back, they're trying to like, disarm and arrest them. Yeah. But then they get in a fight mid-flight, and one of the enemy soldiers gets uh, taken out by a phantom. Yeah. And reminder for those at home, getting taken out by a phantom means your soul gets ripped out. <laughs> yeah, they... Part of the ship actually passes through a phantom's leg, and the pilots like move to the right, move to star hard to starboard, and this guard doesn't do it and just gets just totally face plants through it. Warp. <laughs> and it's just like goodbye. So they do get arrested uh, when they get back. They get put in like laser jail. Yeah. Where they discuss Aki's completed dream and the like consequences of it which are they'd been understanding this force oh, wrong the whole time it wasn't an invading alien force as soon as she explains that all of the people who had actually been on the ground dealing with them is like the meteor dream is somewhere around the time that they're looking for the bacteria i can't remember if it's right before or right after either way it is the impetus for them getting arrested and it's also yeah. how she finds out they're all ghosts and like i am also gonna give the movie pretty mad credit for this it doesn't feel stupid that the aliens are ghosts in context. I know describing it, it sounds very silly, but in context, it's like, okay, yeah, no, like everything has like a life force. The, the life force of these things survived in this format because the planet got blown up so they couldn't return to their own planet's like life force generator. Cool. Okay, fine. It tracks. You follow it. Yeah. 
when you think too hard about it, it mostly makes sense within the world, so it's fine. That is a hard twist to pull off in a way that works, and they've managed to do it. for the, Like, most of you kind of know before that point what's going on. Like, if you're paying attention to the movie, it's pretty clear. But it's still handled pretty well. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to hide it better, maybe don't call the aliens phantoms, but, like, phantoms <laughs> is a real good name for them because they're invisible, so I can't really blame them on that front either. Yeah, well, they're so, invisible until they're not, and because hand-wavy plot reasons. Yeah, they criticize uh, their, like, mechanic pilot man and be like, get us out of jail. And then he's like, I don't know how to get us out of jail. I'm in jail. And then the power goes out and they get out of jail. <laughs> yeah, that was a good moment. It's just like, I'm impressed. And he's like, so am I. So, yeah. <laughs> I do have to say, these kind of characters could grate on me if they, like, one or t- once or twice the character makes kind of a grossish, sexist kind of joke. Almost mm-hmm. never happens throughout the rest of the movie, though. It's kind of early in his character. And I really like him most of the rest of the time. So they did do a very good job with the Joker character, which is, you know, yeah. kind of hard. Well, that and the fact that the, the way that Jane, the other woman in the squad reacts to him gives you the sense that this is just kind of how their relationship works like this is just what they do to joke around and blow off steam yeah like he's trying to make her crack and like she she is playing along in the way that she knows how to because she's Mm -hmm. a very stern woman yeah yeah She's also not super jazzed to have to deal with Dr. Aki's bullshit, but, like, she clearly respects her captain and the rest of her crew, so she doesn't really cause a fuss about it. It isn't, like, an unnecessary female rivalry or anything. It's just, like, these two people don't really get along, and that's okay. Uh, so, they get out of jail. Uh, this is because the terror, the, the Nazi has done a ta- false flag terrorist attack on New York City. Which... Now that I think about it, when in 2001 did this movie come out? Uh, hmm. I don't remember, but it was in development for four years, so... I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just curious now. I don't... Because there is a good, like, good chunk of the year where that... Okay, July. It came out in July. So wow. this is the only reason it came out. If this movie had been delayed, it would never have seen the light of day. I had never <laughs> thought about that. But, like, they literally destroy New York City. Twice. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops! The Nazi military general does a false flag attack on New York City, where he purposefully destroys the barrier and accidentally, like, lets all the phantoms in and kills everybody. The first crew member I thought was dead was uh the the black team member voiced by Ving Rhames whose name escapes me because I don't think their names come up a lot honestly uh yeah. gets like pinned under a truck when they're trying to escape and is like don't worry I'll hold the line give me a gun Ryan <laughs> Ryan okay yeah. uh which is pretty badass but my brain was just like eye rolling really hard because like of course you're killing the black team member first but actually he's the last one to die yeah he holds yeah. out with that gun for a while yeah uh, he he kind of serves as a distraction for them to escape uh, just firing this big cannon into a really big spider thing so uh the uh, pilot and the female soldier managed to get the ship like completed like fixed up before getting taken out themselves in a pretty sad moment honestly you don't want them Mm -hmm. to die no they're 
you like them by this point, and it's kind of sad to see the like the most lighthearted character have to face his own demise like this. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and then Gray tries to hold off the phantoms while the ship takes off, and he's all ready to die to save uh, Dr. Ross and Dr. Sid, and then uh, Aki just flies the ship over and leaves the uh, ramp open so he can jump in. Yeah. In <laughs> a really weird... This guy is super weird... ready to die. She's like, <laughs> get in, idiot. You don't have to <laughs> sacrifice yourself right now. Come yeah, on. you have to do that later. Uh, he does also, it we have to f- as a direct. Also, burn. they have to f- like you didn't let me sacrifice myself earlier. I'm going to do it now. The cinematography, but when he jumps, they do a slow motion like frame stuttering slow mo. Yeah, there's which was interesting. I don't know. Uh, how many times it comes up, but there are a couple moments where they try something that would probably work fine on normal film, but just doesn't really work with the animation they're using. Like, the slow motion <laughs> looks weird. Yeah. Well, had to animate it at such a high frame rate to make that work, and I just, I don't know if they even had the capacity to render something like that at the time. Yeah. So probably, it, maybe it looked good pre- like in the animation suite but just didn't look as good rendered but they didn't have time to deal with that i don't know it's hard to say Um, i was definitely thinking we totally skipped over the part where she's dying also oh yeah she's dying the whole time because the the six spirits are in a coma for a little bit and like her boyfriend enters her dream with her as emotional spiritual support so they can like implant the spirit Oh, yeah. This right. is before they get arrested. They get arrested immediately after this. They, yeah, he is her spiritual support when they do this, like, surgery. So he's in her weird dream when she figures out that they're all ghosts. Yes, that is an important thing to bring up, because, yeah. It's a bit of a weird sequence. It actually is probably the most impactful of the dream sequences, because he's there with her, which works really well, actually. Yes, but then they get arrested and the rest of the things happen. It's a little bit Pacific Rim. Like, there's there's mm. a little bit of the neural drift that feels like it may have consciously or not drawn from this sequence. Mm-hmm. There's this sense that the reason that it works is because he cares about her so much. Uh, yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. Also, it's nice that she doesn't have to just, like, try to explain this and, like, everybody's like, no, you're crazy. It's like, no, he saw it. It's fine. Like, we have, like, evidence here. Like, she knows what she's talking about. It's all good. Like, he doesn't believe in spirits, but, like, he knows what he saw. Yeah. Uh, so they go to the meteor site, because that's where the next spirit is, and they've decided to keep doing that. Um, the raising I mean, what of else are they going to do? Yeah, kind of. The raising of snakes is that Aki's, like, super gonna die if they don't do this soon enough. So they get on that. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, this is just kind of, they get to the climax. The Nazi has gone to space Nazi mode and decided to blow up the cannon. Yeah, he escapes in this pod that ends up orbiting the Earth, and then he contemplates suicide before realizing that he can reach the Zeus cannon. He gets a little notification. It's like, hey, the Zeus cannon is over there. And then he goes over to the Zeus cannon and 
talks to the council over communicators and they're like, yeah, you can totally shoot the big gun. I guess we're out of options now. So he shoots the big gun until it explodes. Aki and what's his nuts uh, do the like final, final, final spirit and it gets implanted in Aki automatically. And then she holds his hand while he gets eaten up by the dead earth. And it fixes the earth and gets rid of all the phantoms, and then the bird is back, and to the end. And a really well, unfortunate they... pop song plays in the credits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they do, uh, when they fix the earth, a, like, big energy beam does come out of the earth. Oh yeah, it has um, a from the meteor site from Legend of Korra. Yeah, like, there's now a spirit portal or whatever on earth but i think what i interpreted it, interpreted it as was like sending the souls of the phantoms back to their planet That's a nice i don't know if how like the physics of that actually works but it's from the meteor site into space so i don't know the reading i had was that the waveform allowed the phantoms to be sucked into our Gaia energy core mm. because like they got connected in a way that worked. Um, yeah. But either way, the problem is dealt with, and the Earth will be fine. If that's true, do you think that the newly verdant Earth is going to contain just alien animals? Why not? Maybe. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I don't know. It's also got and like giant-brained yeah. humanoids <laughs> with weird arms. Their arm, they have yeah. one skinny arm and one massive arm and translucent brain heads. Yeah, the monster design <laughs> is great when they're phantoms. The actual alien design just is, like, real weird to look at. Yeah. I just want to say, the exploding of the Zeus cannon is a really great visual metaphor for the self-destructiveness of hateful ideology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because he just keeps firing it, no matter how many warnings about the fact that the core is overheating yell in his face. And he just keeps <laughs> doing it until it literally explodes with him on it. That is pretty great. Uh, yes, fun facts. So this movie was a really big deal. Uh... In 1997, Square, the company that produced this, started a new division called Square Pictures, which they produced this movie through. And their idea when they founded Square Pictures, the whole premise of this endeavor was that they wanted to have Square Pictures, which was going to be a dedicated animated movie production studio. And they were going to try and push the envelope technologically as far as they could with movies. And then Square Pictures would hand off those developments, those technological advances, back to Squaresoft, who would invest those advances into making better games. And then the stories and ideas from those games would inform future movies for Square Pictures. It was supposed to be this like loop of inspiration, advancement, and inspiration repeated so that they could basically create this industry of like movies and technology and video games. Uh, unfortunately, this movie took four years to make with a team of 200 people operating almost 200 computer workstations, like supercomputers, and a render farm that they built outside of Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, that consisted of 
167 workstations for the actual animation production, and 960 Pentium 3 computers at the render farm just to render the frames for this movie. Jeez. Damn. In total, the movie consists of 141,964 individual frames, with each frame taking an average of 90 minutes to render. Oh my gosh. So part of the reason it took four years is just because it took that long to render. <laughs> it, the, the total artwork for the film took up 15 terabytes of computer space, of storage. <laughs> and it was estimated that the 200 people working on it put in a combined 120 years of work. Damn. So it was a lot. Uh, they filmed it entirely in English because... I think they wanted it to play really well in uh, English-speaking regions. Uh, the producers working on it compared it to their attempt at basically making Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Like, this was supposed to be this massive technological achievement that was going to launch the studio into something really great. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, as you might have guessed given that almost nobody ever talks about this movie And you've probably never seen it. Uh, because this movie, I don't, I can't find the original budget for it. Probably on purpose. The budget ballooned a lot as they got nearer and nearer to the release date, to the point that it ended up costing $137 million to produce this movie. Jeez. And... They made, overall, over the entire run, theatrical run of this movie, they only made $85 million. So this was a net loss for Square of $52 million. Oh, this significantly reduced their operating capital. Oof. This um, is this in any way connected to the fact that later they had to merge with Enix? No, this this actually delayed that merger for a little while because they were in talks to do this merger uh, before the movie came out. And then the movie came out and Enix was like, ooh, I don't know. This was a big blow. I'm not sure that we want to be involved in a business that took this big of a loss. Uh, but eventually they came around and the merger happened and they've been doing pretty well since then. Well, it still takes them six years to get things done. <laughs> the, uh, another interesting element of this production was that when they started this whole endeavor, they actually intended to make the, the character model of Aki Ross into basically a digital actress. They wanted to reuse the same model for future movies, and they hmm. even talked to Ming-Na Wen about staying on to voice future characters. Essentially, like, Muppet-style having the actress of Aki Ross playing characters in future Square Pictures movies. Uh, which obviously cool idea. didn't really happen, because the movie was such a bomb. They It would have made their <laughs> other movies a lot less expensive. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I think they were overestimating their technical competence in the like sense that that would have aged way faster than they thought. And that's not, like, there was no way of them telling how quickly CG was going to develop, but yeah. uh, Aki would not have been usable for very long. No, they probably would have had to at least update the model, if not forego the idea entirely within a few years. But they did produce one other 
thing, Square Pictures, before they were just absorbed into Squaresoft proper, and now what was Square Pictures just makes cutscenes for the games uh, nowadays. But they did do one other project. Can any of you, based on the animation style and the time this came out, guess what that project was? So it wasn't the other Final Fantasy spin-off things, like Advent Children or anything? Uh, no, that was later on, and I don't know how much of that was the same setup that they had used, mm-hmm. or creative team. Um, it, it was around the same time, it was kind of a Initially, it was kind of a tech demo that they made for a specific pair of directors. Huh. I know you've seen it, Kenzie. I, d- I don't know, Lexi. I don't know. Square Pictures made Final Flight of the Osiris, the Animatrix short. Huh. We're trying to kind of pitch this technique uh, to other filmmakers to sort of drum up interest in it. Uh, so they ended up producing this, and it ended up making it onto the Animatrix collection when that finally released. Final Flight of the Osiris is actually quite good and has some pretty excellent animation in it. So, I mean, if, you, hmm. if you're interested, check that out, because it's actually really good. Um, it's not my favorite of the Animatrix shorts, um, but like that's just because I have my own taste. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the other distinction this movie has is uh, it kind of killed the director's career for a little while. So Hironobu Sakaguchi created the original Final Fantasy. He was directly involved in making them up until number five in the mainline series. And then he moved into a producing role at Square. And then eventually he was acting as an executive producer. And this whole movie seems to have mostly been his kind of brainchild. So when it failed, he actually stepped down from Square and started his own like independent company that worked on video games in Japan separate from Square because he you know made a massive misstep like in terms of as a business decision this was a huge failure so he stepped down and opened up Mistwalker Studios uh which they focused mainly on coming up with video game story ideas and writing scripts for games, and then they would uh, hire out third-party studios to do a lot of the animation and actual programming work. Their most famous release was probably The Last Story, which was his sort of attempt at doing a new like big JRPG project, uh, which was released on the Wii. It was part of Project Rainfall, which was this attempt to get some major JRPG releases from Japan that were Wii exclusives released, uh, localized to North America. Uh, This was also the most expensive video game-inspired movie of the time, and remained so until 2010 when Disney produced Prince of Persia. So, Hmm. this was an expensive movie for a long time. Yeah, it's kind of hard to I remember mean, how much how much film budgets have inflated since then, but that movie was bonkers to produce. Like, yeah. I, all the more reason I wish that had had tied its story together a little bit tighter cuz I don't I don't think this movie had to be a failure. Yeah. I think the taste was there for it. I mean, this is 2001. The Matrix was huge just like a couple years ago. We were in the midst of the prequels. It's not like the public didn't have a taste for science fiction. Or even, like, kind of weird science fiction. I just don't think it was 
between the new and kind of intimidating art style that didn't really present a lot of interesting to watch moments. Like it was weird to probably for the red general audiences without any of the prettiness that I think would have made up for that. And it just needed a little bit of tighter, tighter storytelling. And I, I just wish this project had done better for everybody's sake, you know? Yeah. Anyways, as far as its video gameness, I mean, a lot of it does feel like a cutscene from a video game, and that's not mm-hmm. to denigrate it, because a lot of video game cutscenes are used to do things that traditional filmmaking can. You have a lot of impossible camera angles, you have a lot of physics-defying stunt work that would literally be impossible for human actors to accomplish, and because you're doing it all in one seamless 3D animated world, you don't have the same disconnect you have when you're changing between live-action environments and actors and CG models that are doing stunts. Uh, So in that sense, it is a really impressive technical achievement, and it does play very smoothly. Like It's all very seamless in a way that is really impressive, especially for the time that it was made. It's definitely got, like, an eye for cinematography and stuff as well. Like, this film, it looks and feels like a film. The score yeah. is fantastic. The score, the score, the was, score was really gorgeous. Yeah. 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 So, uh, there are a couple moments where I was like, this is a little ham-fisted, like when they pull uh, one of the squad mates out of a, a hole where some phantoms are clawing after her. It's like this really loud... Um, glory music or whatever but that was one moment where i was like that was a little too much but otherwise the score was i noticed it right away i was like this is gorgeous yeah uh honestly i kind of recommend it at least for one watch i don't not gonna say it's gonna be your new favorite movie or anything but if you go in with an open mind there's a lot of really interesting stuff there a lot of reviews around the time did accuse this of falling into the uncanny valley and i think your mileage will vary on whether or not it is uncomfortable to watch in that sense, but I think it does have a lot of value even just as a technical experiment, and I think if you are interested in it at all based on what we've talked about, seek it out and watch it, because it is a genuinely interesting pop culture artifact of the early 2000s. Alright, so it's come to the time of the episode where we ask if there's anything else you guys want to talk about before we wrap up. There's one fun fact I want to bring up before we go, which is that in their marketing run-up to the release of this movie, Square Pictures was trying to make Aki Ross like a movie star, like I was saying before, uh, to the point that they got the character featured on the cover of Maxim magazine. Oh dear. What? I don't actually know what this is. Uh, it's, uh, they rate how attractive women are and put them in a list in their magazine. Oh, I see. Yikes. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> Keeping in mind, we did just talk about Laura Croft. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily weird in that context. It's weird in the sense that this is a character in a movie that you created as an animated model and you're trying to promote them as if they were a real person. Yeah. That part's weird. There are movies about this premise. I think there's one with Robert De Niro. I don't know. There is. There is a movie with this exact premise where a programmer creates, like, a digital actress, but the world doesn't know that she's fake. 
but I don't. It's been ages since I've seen it, and I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> On that note, anyway, let's give our post post granting ratings here. Lexi, you start off. I mean, a solid seven out of ten. I, I'm just gonna go basic. Like, I liked this movie. It has a few. It has some flaws. It's not the best thing I've ever seen, but. On the scale of video game movies, it's phenomenal, <laughs> comparatively. Yeah, if you are ranking on the actual quality scale and not the most entertaining to watch scale, this one does does end up in the higher echelons. If you're basing it on the, well, is this fun to watch whether or not the movie is good? I, I think it's still firmly beaten out by a lot of the, like, good trash. Mm. Uh, I think it depends, yeah. I also genuinely like this movie. I think it's dealing with a lot of very interesting ideas and sci-fi concepts. And as someone who has played a lot of the Final Fantasy games, I like that it captures that same spirit. (laughs) Which is not a pun that I intended when I said it, but there it is. Uh, I give this five out of seven spirits within. Yeah, uh, and I give it a Sid. All right, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I give this a Biggs out of Wedge. (laughs) Thank you all for joining us on this week's episode of Video Game the Movie the Podcast. We are still trucking along. We're going to get up to the Resident Evil movies next time, which is fun. We promise they're coming. Yes. And we may or may not have a very special guest coming up soon, so stay tuned for that. Thank you all for joining us. I have been uh, Mackenzie Easton. You can find me on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. I have been Nathan Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Bert Nerdtram. And I have been Lexi Conwell. And you can find me at Conwell underscore Alex on Twitter. You You can can find the show. There you go ahead. Sorry, Nathan, do you know the show Twitter? Yes. You can find this show on Twitter at VGTM Podcast, and that is it. Game over, (laughs) y'all. Don't forget to save. Yeah. Put a quarter in your butt. (laughs) Don't. Don't do that one. (laughs) Don't.